0: You would take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter twenty-eight. Matthew's Gospel, chapter twenty-eight, verses sixteen through twenty. Passage should be familiar; will be familiar to many, I suppose. We have looked at Matthew twenty-eight even in recent weeks. We will continue to look at Matthew twenty-eight over the course of the next several weeks in discussing together our strategy for making disciples. Starting out in ministry, I used to be really insecure and apprehensive about repetition in preaching, and uh, over time, I've realized that just about the time I have grown weary of saying something, someone finally heard me. So I'm much better at ease with redundancy in ministry today than 10 or 15 years ago. It stands to reason that that which is primary, that which is most essential to who we are and what we are doing as the body of Christ would be the kind of thing that we're repeating again and again, ensuring that we are adequately casting vision for the making of disciples, keeping the main thing, the main thing. In fact, the passage itself, if our goal is to keep the main thing, the main thing, we might note that the main thing is set forth for us in the very passage that we're going to be studying together this morning. In our first service this morning, I I compared repetition with regards to our disciple-making strategy to practicing your base offense or your base defense in football, but that's really not an apples and apples comparison. In fact, this is such a basic foundational, fundamental element. This is more like blocking and tackling, and so if you go to football practice There are a couple of things I can guarantee you, you are going to do. You are going to block and you are going to tackle because those two elements of the game are essential. They are necessary. So repetition here, it may be a little bit redundant for those who've been around and paying close attention, but I think it can be beneficial for us anyway. And we're going to attempt to unpack in some detail over the course of the next week's what we want to do in terms of disciple-making strategy, which we believe to be reflective of the mission assigned to us by Jesus. So if you're new or you've been around for a while and just haven't really gotten your arms around who we are as a body, if if you want to know who we are and what we're trying to do together here as a body under the Lordship of Christ, if you want to understand Longview Point Church, stick with this series for the next few weeks, and I, I think you'll get who we are, and and more importantly, I think there'll be further clarity with regards to the message and the mission of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, if you found your way there, join me in standing as we read God's Word together. Matthew 28 and verse 16, this is what the Word of God says. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. May the Lord bless and honor the reading and the preaching of his holy word. You may be seated. So for the past year or more, I have sort of been wrestling through a simplification or reduction of our disciple-making strategy in a way that is readily communicated to God's people, reproducible congregationally within discipleship groups and individually, a plan biblical plan that works for all followers of christ for the purpose of making disciples in our lives individually you i'm gonna bible nerd out for just a moment but y'all bear with me right so I begin to look at the Great Commission, which is where the main thing is set forth for us. And what is clear in the reading and study of the Great Commission is that there is a single verb, a single imperative verb, a single commandment. It is to make disciples. It doesn't look that way in your English translations. I got all that. But in the Greek text of Matthew 28:16 through 20, there is one imperative verb, one commandment. It is To make disciples. Now, there are other forms that look verbish in your English translation, right? You have go, you have baptize, you have teach. But in the original language, those are actually participles. And here's what that means grammatically and syntactically. That means, I know nobody cares about participles and verbs, I got you, but here's why it matters. Because participles in the Greek language in this setting, in this way, are intended to serve the purpose of the main verb. In other words, grammatically and syntactically, the Great Commission is saying that you are commanded to make disciples. And in order to do that, you must go and you must baptize and you must teach. In other words, Jesus, in giving the Great Commission has given us a strategy for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So we to unpack that and began to have conversations about that with your pastors. This is what I see in the Great Commission. This works as a framework for disciple-making strategy. And almost to a man, this was their response. That all sounds good, but how are you going to get them to do it? How are you going to mobilize every member of the body of Christ going and baptizing and teaching? So I sort of went back to the drawing board and began to look closer at the passage. Now, what I've developed here and what I want us to talk through and what I believe Jesus has established in these verses is a four-step strategy for disciple-making. There are the three straightforward strategic steps, go, baptize, and teach. But implicit in the text, in fact, essential to the text, is this invitation of Jesus that we would abide in him. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 16, the Bible says, The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said. This coming near is what I call a, a pastoral or shepherdly move on the part of Jesus. It's not the kind of thing that we so readily observe here, but if you'll think about another biblical passage, maybe it'll help us to appreciate this movement that Jesus makes in the passage. Remember when Jesus had been raised and word of the resurrection was beginning to get back to the disciples? And they gathered themselves, it seems, to discuss these reports of the resurrection of Jesus. And Thomas, who takes the moniker of doubting Thomas over the course of church history, says, unless I can see the scars in his hands and in his side, I just cannot believe that the Jesus that died such a brutal death on the cross could be raised again. How is this possible this is an impossibility you're asking me to believe that Jesus dead three days has somehow been raised from the grave and what does Jesus do he draws near Thomas and Thomas can see the marks of the cross in his hands and in his side and Thomas confesses my Lord and my God the drawing near of Jesus that takes place here in Matthew 28 in verse 17 is to scatter the doubts and fears of those 11 disciples. Jesus is drawing near to them to allay all fears, all doubts, all concerns, to embolden the 11 that they might go forth and proclaim the message of the gospel that Jesus has died for our sin, that he was raised again on the third day, that he's alive and alive forevermore. Now, the interest of Jesus, the pastoral interest of Jesus doesn't just stop with this movement drawing closer in order to affirm empirically that he is alive again. He opens the Great Commission with this declaration, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth lest there be any confusion about with whom real lordship lies. Just in case you've been confused by the fact... That Jesus has subjected himself to the very powers that would crucify him on the cross. Jesus makes it abundantly clear. He is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. He provides a theological basis for their boldness and confidence and conviction as they preach the message of the gospel. And then he ends... With remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will be with you in the fulfillment of this mission. Now think about who he's addressing here. These are 11 disciples who had walked with Jesus for more than three years of his earthly ministry. And yet, in Christ's great hour of need, they dispersed. There was such urgency to betray, to betray Jesus by their departure that one follower of Christ is said to have run out of the Garden of Gethsemane, stripped of his clothes and completely naked. Peter goes so far as to deny Jesus with his mouth, cursing in order to disassociate himself from the one who'd been betrayed into the hands of both Roman and Jewish authorities. And yet Jesus draws near, proves his resurrection, gives the promise of his lordship over all things, and the assurance of his presence with them. And note what begins to happen next in the experience of the apostles. The same Peter who had been so cowardly in his denial of Jesus, betraying Jesus in his hour of need by the time we come to acts chapter 4 and verse 20 says for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard jesus draws near the disciples consequently the disciples draw near jesus and they find themselves emboldened for the preaching of the message of the gospel Jesus takes by the power of his resurrection and abiding presence a band of cowardly believers who had betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ, sets them ablaze by his abiding presence, puts them on mission, and untold millions would come to faith, standing on the shoulders of those who could not but speak of what they had seen and heard of Christ. Most preaching, which is focused on charging the people with the task of disciple-making or evangelism, is oriented around the guilt trip. Now, I'm a Baptist preacher, a husband of now 20 years, and I have three children. I know all about guilt trips, and I'm pretty good at using them when they're necessary, right? But here's what I've found. They're not effective in the long term at mobilizing people for the mission. I can make you feel bad. You could feel bad independent of the pastor's aid. And that might move you briefly, but it won't last. Even compassion, virtuous though it may be, is not an effective means of moving people on a long-term basis. It's necessary that we be reminded from time to time of the great Absence, the void of the gospel in so much of the world. Billions of people in our world today are groping in darkness without access to the message of the gospel. This is a tragedy that we ought to labor to resolve by the sending forth of men and women and boys and girls with the message on their mouth into all the world. But even the notion of the perishing is often not enough, at least on an ongoing basis to keep the body mobilized. Here's what I've experienced. If as a pastor and as an individual, if I can just keep Jesus before my eyes, if we can gather on the Lord's day and hold Jesus before you, who is worthy of all worship and praise. If we can understand that the great tragedy in the world today is not just the absence of the preaching of the gospel, but the absence of the worship of Jesus by every man and woman and boy and girl. That abiding presence of Jesus before us, the indwelling work of God's Holy Spirit, will keep us on mission and well mobilized for the duration of our life. The goodness and the glory of Jesus never wears out. You will never entirely mind the depths of the gospel or the goodness of what God has done for you in the sending forth of His only Son, Jesus. If you will fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ again tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day, you'll find yourself in the sandals of Peter who said, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard in Jesus. It was nearness to Christ that mobilized those early disciples. John was with Peter when he spoke on behalf of the group in Acts chapter 4. John would record in 1 John uh, chapter 1 and verses 1 and following, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed and we have seen it. And we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy and that your joy may be complete. John is grabbing at all of these synonyms for sight and touch. He says, we saw Jesus. And by the way, we saw Jesus. And with great emphasis, yet again, we saw Jesus. And did I mention that we touched Jesus? And oh, by the way, we touched him with our hands. We were in his physical presence, and because of our proximity to Jesus, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We want you to know our joy is made complete. When your joy is made complete, we want you to know what we know about the goodness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how you mobilize the body. What do you do personally, individually, in order to abide in christ well there is rhyme and reason as to why this series lands where it lands over the past several weeks we've unpacked spiritual disciplines for devotion to jesus how do you abide in christ you relish those sweet seasons of prayer you read his word Scouring its pages to know more of the character and attributes of a good and faithful and all-sovereign God. You worship Him in spirit and in truth, acknowledging that He and He alone is worthy to receive all glory and praise and honor. You share the message of the gospel with those you cross paths with. You give sacrificially. You exercise the spiritual disciplines. You labor to be brought near God. And the promise of the Scripture could not be clear. If we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. His abiding presence in our life is the secret to mobilizing ourselves individually and mobilizing this body in partnership for the gospel to share the good news of Jesus into all the world. You abide by exercising the spiritual disciplines and you'll speak freely, fluidly of that which you're most enthusiastic about. You speak of your kids openly, freely, without any reluctance you grandparents are the worst you can be in the grocery store line and there's a stranger in front of you if they have a grandchild you will likely hear about their grandchildren before you get checked out right we talk about what we're most enthusiastic about the answer to your indifference toward making disciples is not a weekly guilt trip It is a daily falling in love with the Lord Jesus Christ all over again. Abide in him and he in you and you will be mobilized and fruitful in the mission. So this idea of abiding in Christ, the nearness of Jesus to us and our proximity to him by faith and repentance is is what The Great Commission is couched within. It is the framework for the Great Commission. Then there is the substance of the commissioning itself. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. I can't tell you the number of times through the years I've heard sermons on the Great Commission with all of the emphasis on going. How many times have I heard the preacher say, The first word of the Great Commission is go. You must go. But that is not where the force of our passage lies. In fact, I want you to be careful to listen to what I do say and what I do not say in the next few sentences. You do not need a ticket from Delta, a short-term mission trip, or a lifelong mission trip in order to be actively engaged in making disciples. Now, let me be clear, I want everyone to be engaged in short-term and long-term missions in some capacity, but this is not the kind of thing that we are calendaring during our summer. We are 365 days a year actively engaged in the making of disciples. In fact, if we could go back to Bible nerd Wade for just a moment. The idea here is that as we are going in this particular undefined participle form, as we are being carried about, as we are doing what we do, living our life. I hate that terminology, but you you understand what I intend. While you're going to work, while you're doing your job, while you're playing your game, while you're enjoying recreation, while you're out to dine, while you're engaged with friends and family, while you are at school, you are walking with Jesus, sensitive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit and the doors of opportunity that may be open to you to share the message of the gospel. This, this idea of going, in other words, is not exclusive to those who are making disciples. Disciples. What Jesus is describing is a scenario in which everyone is going. But what he's inviting us to do is to go with vigilance and intentionality, to go on purpose, to be aware that where God has put you, he has put you for a determined purpose that you might bear witness to the message of the gospel in that setting. Everyone is going. But what the Great Commission calls believers to do is to go with intentionality, to go with purpose. I hear church talking heads from time to time talking about the demographic makeup of various churches. And talking about age makeup in those churches, age age based demographic groups within the church, and the fruitfulness of young people often unaware of what they are implying. There can be the subtle suggestion that you want your church to be comprised exclusively of young people. I would note here it's a concern for me when I see a church that is all old heads. It is also a a concern for me when I see a church that has not the benefit of great wisdom. There ought to be some balance within the body of Christ. We are all members of the body in desperate need for the friction, tensions, accountability, and encouragement that can derive from a broad range of generations. But what's being suggested there is that young people are more beneficial to or fruitful for ministry than are the older generations. Well, nothing could be less relevant to your ability to make disciples than your age. They don't realize, I think, what they're, what they're truly observing. What they're observing is the simple fact that younger people have a tendency to be more socially mobile. And social mobility allows for a greater degree of influence, a broader sphere of influence. Here's what I'm driving at. And this ought to be a warmly received admonition from your pastor. You have never heard a charge like this from a Baptist preacher. What I'm saying to you is have a party, but do it on purpose and leverage the influence that God has given you. Do what you love and cherish doing, whatever it is that floats your boat, what you enjoy spending your weekends doing. Throw yourselves into those things, but not mindlessly, with intentionality and with vigilance. Do what you do on purpose, inviting those around you to come to faith in Christ. In essence, be socially mobile for the advancement of the gospel. Be present and be discerning, eyes open to opportunities that God may be affording you for the purpose of sharing the gospel and practice this kind of intentionality turning ordinary conversation to eternally significant matters if we go back to this idea of abiding and its relationship with going you'll find that you don't need a great deal of training at turning everyday conversation towards spiritually significant issues if you're really enthusiastic about what you've just witnessed You you experience this personally. You know how this works and moves and and operates. You want to talk about the thing that has you excited, even when it's trivial, worldly, temporal, fading, passing away. Fall in love with Jesus and allow that the overflow of your heart be the well from which you draw to share in conversation with those who so desperately need Jesus. Go. Go. Jesus goes on, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a public identification with Jesus. It is the outward representation of the inward reality of the new new birth. In order for a person to experience baptism, they must experience the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing of the Word of God, hearing of the message of the gospel. People cannot come to faith, people cannot legitimately experience the great blessing of baptism without having heard the message of the gospel. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ, which begins with being clear as to the message of the gospel that Jesus came to save sinners that He does so through His sinless life, that He does so by virtue of His sacrificial death, that the victory has been achieved and our salvation has been secured through the victory of Christ's resurrection. He walks forth holding the keys to death and hell and the grave. You and I can live with gospel confidence in the promise of the resurrection of our physical bodies because of our forbearer, Jesus Christ. Salvation comes by Faith and faith by hearing this message. Share the message of the gospel. Abiding is just drawing near Jesus. Going is just walking with Jesus. And the business of baptism, or baptizing rather, is calling people to Jesus. And we continue to concoct these substitute alternatives to sharing the gospel that are ineffective and come well short of providing the necessary fodder for the flame of the gospel to be lit in the hearts of sinners. I was talking to a pastor this past week who was concerned about the direction of his congregation with regards to missions. They regarded themselves to be quite missional, but all that he could ever really get them to do on mission was to build stuff, construction projects, and the like. And those can be a means to an end. Some type of building, some facility, some modification might provide a platform, or an open door, an opportunity to be able to share the gospel in a given community. But those are a means to an end. They must never be an end in themselves. Unless we are sharing the message of the gospel, we have come short of the work of missions. Unless we are sharing the gospel, we have come short of the fulfillment of this strategic step in the Great Commission. We must share the gospel. It's, it's, it's surprising sometimes the extent to which we deceive ourselves into believing that by virtue of our good works that somehow we're going to swoon the masses to faith in Jesus in the absence of any proclamation of the gospel. No one has ever come to faith in Jesus exclusively because some Christian people were really nice neighbors. It's never, ever, ever happened, and it will never, ever, ever happen. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the message of the gospel. I get in trouble with this one, but I'm noticing this trend all over the southeast of constructing these large metal crosses along the interstate, which I don't necessarily have a huge issue with except when you begin to engage in conversation about them. And it's like people just think that people are going to drive down Highway 55 and they're going to pull off on the side of the road and gaze at this metal Christian iconography and fall out and get born again. It has never happened, and it will never happen. Salvation comes by hearing the message of the gospel. There's no way to get around it. There is no way to sidestep it. But again, if you'll circle back to abiding in Christ, When you find yourself so smitten with Jesus, there'll be no reluctance to speak of what you have seen and heard and experienced by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Abiding is just drawing near Jesus. Going is just walking with Jesus. Baptizing is calling people to faith in Jesus. I think sometimes there's a lot of reluctance at knowing how to share and we'll unpack some of the tools uh, that help in evangelism over the course of the next few weeks. But I would note that more times than not, the language for sharing the gospel in the New Testament is the language of testimony or witness. A witness is never asked to give testimony outside of their field of expertise or their personal experience. All we have been charged to do is to speak of our personal experiences of having been. Touched by the gospel, witness to the work of the gospel in our lives personally. Be at ease at speaking of your own experiences and coming to faith in Jesus. Whatever rudimentary understanding of the gospel is set forth in the Bible, you may have. You you never know how God might be pleased to take that little smidge of gospel representation and expound it many times over through the work of the Holy Spirit, drawing the lost To himself abide and go and and baptize But notice what jesus says next go therefore and make disciples of all nations Baptizing in the name of the father and son and holy spirit verse 20 Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you And i'm with you always even to the end of the age Teach them Teach them what it looks like what it means what the bible says about walking with Jesus. If baptizing is calling people to Jesus, teaching is just about helping others to walk with Jesus. Note that the goal set forth in our passage is not to make converts. It is to make disciples. So when a person comes to faith in Jesus, that does not represent the finish line for us. Rather, it's the beginning of a new race of faith. That God has called us as individual members of the body to be of help, to be of encouragement, to be of assistance in helping them run their race well. Discipleship groups and church programs should be a great source for Christian growth and maturity. But we needn't be bound to the church building, the church gathering, or church meeting times in order to make disciples. One of the things that I really want to press over the next few weeks is that you and I as individual members of the body of Christ have been called in the Great Commission to go and to baptize and to teach. There are all kinds of ways that we think about this that I think impede the church in the kingdom mission. Sometimes there's the thought that the Great Commission is for pastors. Now I want you to think about what a limiting factor that is. You have eight pastors at Longview Point. There are roughly 1,800 members. So this misunderstanding of the Great Commission stands to reduce the collective influence and effectiveness of 1,800 people down to eight. That is not at all what Jesus has called us to in the Great Commission. I've shared this a few times in smaller group meetings. I did a little anecdotal research in a not-so-long-ago preacher meeting. And these are my guys in my circle, so naturally I think they're the best. And I would talk to every pastor I could about their disciple-making strategy in their church. And inevitably, the conversation would drift toward programs or classes that would meet on the campus of their church on Sunday or on Wednesday, but mostly on Sunday. And what I'm saying to you is, you don't have to have for disciple-making purposes, the church gathered either in a small group or corporately the way we're gathered here this morning. Think of the way that misunderstanding reduces our potential for effectiveness and fruitfulness in ministry. If, if the only day of the week we can make disciples is Sunday, then we've only availed ourselves of one-seventh of our potential for the purpose of making disciples. In every instance, with every pastor I talk to, if you remove the building, a place to gather the way we're gathered here, you could completely kill the disciple-making strategy. Now, we are militating against that kind of mentality here, but it still exists. Here's what I want to say to you. I thank God that God has given us a place that we could gather in this way. In our cultural context, having a place to gather in this way is just a part of the way things work. But if we were today, this afternoon, God forbid, we were to finally get that earthquake that they've been promising out of Memphis for 50 years, and the ground just opened up and this building and all of the resources that we so enjoy here on the corner of Mackinvale and Bahalia went away. You with a Bible in your hand and the Spirit of God in your heart would have all of the resources necessary to persist in the work of making disciples of all nations, independent of your pastors, independent of this building, independent of the resources that we so enjoy. Every member of the body of Christ has been called to go and to baptize and to teach, making disciples of all nations i'm thankful for small group ministries and i want every member of this body to be a part of small group ministries but there is so much benefit to you as a mature follower of jesus walking alongside a new believer and modeling for them what it means to be a godly husband a godly father a man who loves jesus A man who relishes the opportunity to spend time with Christ in prayer and to study his word. What does it look like for a Christian man to go to work? What does it look like for a Christian young man to interact with a young lady? What does that look like? There are things that we will never get to in the preaching ministry. And maybe not even within the context of a small group gathered that you can benefit a younger new believer in Christ. It's what he's called us. To do every member of the body actively engaged in this way. You don't need a seminary degree to teach others what you know about following Jesus. Sometimes I think the message and the mission of Jesus gets lost in the fog of church programming. We got a thousand different things going and we really try to push back against that. Sometimes maybe that works in a way that's detrimental to your pet program, but we really try to stay lean. This is not a cruise ship with all of the amenities that would keep you at ease, but a battleship that we hope to keep ready for war at every occasion and opportunity, right? Sometimes I think just the fog of cultural consumer-based Christianity drowns out the message and the mission. And the church that I served before I came here to be the pastor, it was, a, it was a good community and, and people were moving into our area for school district purposes, the way people often move into our community and coming from different church backgrounds and prior church experiences. And they were, they were coming into the fellowship of our church. And then what we began to observe is that within about six to 12 months They were responding in invitations again and and saying, I thought I was a Christian, but I I have never heard the gospel this way. And that's kind of a bittersweet thing, right? You can be really encouraged that people are coming to genuine faith within the ministry of your body. But once you hear that a hundred times, it begins to be concerning. And you wonder, what in the world were they being exposed to or listening to if this overwhelming majority of people who identified themselves as Christian are making the discovery that they never really knew the message of the gospel? Now, I'm not convinced that there are that many like-minded sister churches out there that are just failing to preach the gospel. But I am convinced that the gospel is not preached nearly enough. And the message of the gospel is not emphasized strongly enough. And even where it is, there is the constant buzz and roar of church programming and the consumer mentality of Christians in the Bible Belt South, and the longing and the want that all of our creature comforts might be met, such that the message of the gospel and the mission of our Savior Jesus can be completely lost if we're not clear. To make crystal clear the message of the gospel, which is that Jesus came to save sinners, and the mission of our Savior, which is to go and to make disciples. If nothing else is achieved in the course of this Sunday's sermons, my prayer is that we as a congregation would be crystal clear as to the message of the gospel. That Christ lived without sin. That he bore our sin penalty on the cross. That he was raised again on the third day. That the mission of our Savior would be crystal clear. He has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And his invitation to the church is that we would be joined in that mission. May that be crystal clear in every head and in every heart. May Jesus' name, may his message be known, and may his mission be joined all across this body. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for the chance, Lord, to be reminded of the gospel that saves us from our sins. And Lord, in such simple terms of the mission to which you have called us. God, we together and individually confess our apathy and our indifference toward lostness. We have to further confess, Lord, that when that arises in us, it is almost always, if not always, the product of our apathy and indifference toward your Son, Jesus. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to keep our gaze fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to never forget To remember in such vivid ways your goodness toward us in sending forth Jesus. How he sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. Make of us a people who have never and will never get over the simple fact that Jesus would die for us. God, I pray that you would mobilize us by virtue of our affections for Jesus, that we would go with intentionality, boldly declaring the message of the gospel, that you would allow the Spirit to draw the net, that many souls would come to faith in Jesus. and Learn what it means to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Have your way with us, God, we pray in these next moments. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.